Forbes Imogen from Squarepeg. We are a venture capital firm in Sydney, Melbourne, Tel Aviv and Singapore on a mission to empower exceptional founders. We have over $1.6 billion in assets under management across multiple funds and have invested in category-defining companies including Fiverr, Canva, Stashaway, Airwallocks, Crudivo and Tomorrow. Today we have a story from a co-founding duo that had a huge and lasting impact on the Australian tech ecosystem. And while they predate Squarepeg's existence, founding their company back in the early 2000s, it's a timeless story of invention, perseverance and friendship that I find inspiring today. Our guests are, of course, Lee Jasper and Rob Philpot, the founders of Akinex. Akinex will likely be an unfamiliar name to you if you don't work in construction, planning or development. But if you do work in any of these industries, if you're a builder or a foreman or lead procurement or project management, you likely live inside Akinex for most of your working life. It's how you get your job done. And it is used on every continent in the world, including Antarctica, across trillions of dollars worth of projects, which is why in 2018, Oracle snapped up Akinex for over $1.6 billion, the largest ever technology acquisition in Australia at the time. On today's episode, we're going to talk through their journey, and they're pretty candid about the best and worst parts of building Akinex over the 20 years that they were at the helm. And that's where we'll start. A note quickly before we do is that Rob and Lee have quite similar voices, so we'll do our best to keep you up to speed with who's talking. Meet Rob. We had lots of ups and downs whether we would make it as a company, so we had... and. I, don't think we were quite al- alcoholics, but there were lots of days where we'd have a beer to commiserate and then a beer to celebrate the next day. And there's this roller coaster, you know, we'd have a good conversation with one customer and think that the business was going to be the next Microsoft. And then the next day, a customer would complain about something and you're wondering whether you're going to make it through or we'd miss a sales number or something would go wrong, we'd miss a deal. So there's lots of up- ups and downs, but no sense that we had the strategy right, so we had to keep evolving, but a sense that we were on, you know, that the industry would change and that this was what was going to happen, but lots of doubts about whether we would be the ones to make it work in our industry. Yeah, I often say that to be an entrepreneur, you've got to be a bit of a contradiction on a range of things, and that's an example of that. You've got to be somehow super self-confident that you're going to win and you're going to succeed, but at the same time, scared that someone else is going to beat you to it or scared that you haven't got it right. And if you have those things kind of in balance, then you kind of self-regulate and you end up navigating the right path. And we're also quite naive. And I think being naive, it's not a bad thing when you're a founder. If Knowing what I know now, if I knew it would be the journey it was, and it was a great journey. We had a lot of fun and it was incredibly rewarding, but it was also a lot of hard work. And yeah. for anybody building a business, it is hard work. You, you've got to accept that. But I didn't really know that at the start. Like all our SquarePeg podcasts and reflective of our culture at SquarePeg, we like to delve back and learn about the people behind the company to discover what makes them tick and how they weigh their impact on the world. And this episode is no different. So we're going way back, years before the birth of Akinex, to when Rob and Lee met at boarding school. Here's Lee. Rob was a year older than me in the boarding house and Rob had gone off to 
Norway for a year's exchange and came back a much better bloke. And so I thought, oh, well, if it worked for him, I'm already a good bloke, but gee, I'd be amazing if I went off. So I went off to Switzerland for a year uh, and then had a year, year's exchange, student exchange in Switzerland. So we were pretty international, I guess, already. But um, then went to university, we did different things. I did engineering, Rob did building, but obviously stayed close during that period. And I think the I always wanted to go into business. I did engineering, but I always wanted to kind of go towards business, and it's how I ended up at McKinsey. I think, Rob, you still yeah. still want to be a builder. You're still kind of trying to build oh, things. Yeah, around, I, I like building. I like, but I was kind of... So, Rob, just to jump in, I've got to say this. So, Rob thinks he's a builder. So, <laughs> there were many times where Rob would save his money in the history of Aconex by building something yourself. So we had a lot of offices that had crooked walls. We had one boardroom table that yeah. ended up basically turning As into a canoe. A canoe. Had, that's true, but we never had any um, non-straight walls. I think that one, yeah. you make that one up. No, the London office didn't have the straightest of walls. Well, I think the building was not straight. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But um, yeah, I think I always wanted to be in the construction game. I like the the tangible result you get from being on a project. I love kind of afterwards going, I helped do that. But I also, I think, had this underlying desire to one day work for myself and not to be, you know, in this salary position because, I don't know, it's just something that my dad was an accountant that had his own practice and, you know, it just seemed to me, you know, having a bit of control over your own destiny was something that was really appealing to me and I think it was just something I expected would one day happen. When the guys first started discussing the concept of Aconex, Lee was working at McKinsey & Company, the global management consulting firm, and trusted advisor to many of the world's most influential businesses. Well, I had the good fortune, I guess, of knowing a little bit about the internet, which was not much, but more than most people at McKinsey at the time, and so did a range of different internet-related studies, and one of them was with, with Fairfax, so it was quite interesting to see how they were responding to the market and what was happening in terms of disruption in that market and with Seek and real estate and others coming in. But that was 1999, right? 1999. But then Rob, so he was working on construction projects with Multiplex and I'd seen quite a bit of, or a bit of exposed to different companies and how they were responding to the internet and we thought there was an opportunity to potentially do something in the construction space. So Mm. over a game of golf and a couple of games of squash or whatever, started talking to Rob about what we could potentially do with the internet in the construction space. Yeah, I love the industry and I love working on projects, but um, was frustrated by how projects were run and the inefficiency between all these different organisations that came together for these projects. And as Lee said, he was working in the internet space with McKinsey. I was being frustrated by the industry and it was kind of a bit of a coming together and going, well, why don't we use this new internet thing as the network to tie these companies together and, and, and do something about it. So that's really the genesis of where Aconex came from. I mean, we, we evolved our business model a little bit over, over, the, over the initial period. We thought we were going to make our money out of, out of uh, a construction trade exchange, for example, a procurement engine, and document control was going to be the supporting acts. But it turned out that that wasn't quite the case. It turned out to be people ready to pay for, for document control and, and RFIs and, and bidding today because they had a hair on fire problem but you know changing the entire supply chain of the industry was something they weren't quite ready for at that point. So when we started the business and it's quite quite different a lot of often you'll hear people say that you need a tech founder like a, a developer to be part of your founding team but we you know our first employees after we raised money were, were developers so we worked with a team of developers and again knew enough about the technology to, to work with them but we you know, we always brought in that capability into the business. Yeah. You need to understand the customer first and foremost, really. I mean, that's you need to understand the problem, what you're trying to do and solve, and how you're going to go about it, how you're going to make money out of it. 
the technology in many ways is the enabler of that, that vision. Robin Lee did figure out how to make money out of it, about $1.5 billion worth. But it all began by finding a gap in the market when it came to streamlining the construction process. Before Akinex, the process was clunky and disjointed with owners, consultants, architects and engineers all working autonomously on the same projects without any easy way to collaborate. And while they believed in the power of the internet to change how project teams worked together, it soon became apparent that it was not going to be so easy in practice. 20 years ago, most potential customers did not have the internet or even computers on their construction sites. For those that did, this was still the age of dial-up modems or ADSL connections. And so they spent as much time selling the benefits of the internet as they did selling their new product. But with document control and requests for information, a time-consuming and frustrating process, they knew that they were in with a shot. So you end up with hundreds of subcontractors and suppliers, a head contractor, dozens of consultants and the client, and they're all working on this project for that period of time. And all of those companies need to understand what's the latest set of documents I'm working off, what questions have people asked me that I need to answer, what questions am I asking others that I need answered to do my job, what progress are we at. All of these things are things that every company needs to understand for them. And so what you had before Aconex is every company was doing that in, internally and individually. So whether it be a, a spreadsheets or they built homegrown databases or some kind of document management tool, it was all about them and their organisation. And every time there was communication across those company boundaries, you'd end up with a manual export and a manual import, whether it be emailing or uh, printing and curing or whatever it might be. There was this export, import, send, receive. And so problems there were whoever was receiving that information had to manually enter it into their system. So it took time. There was often it would be mis-entered, so there'd be manual data entry. And also importantly, you'd have this delay. So this idea of how the information flows between organisations is very stuttered and very error-prone. And if there's ever a dispute about when something was sent, you know, whether it was answered or not, everyone's got their own version of the truth. And so they end up having these arguments about what they think based on their own version of the truth. So what we try and do is bring together all of these companies on one platform, still maintain all of the benefits of behaving like they've got their own tool, but allowing them to seam seamlessly collaborate and share information. From building their own wonky walls to boardroom tables, when Akinex first launched, Rob and Lee knew the importance of being frugal. In a time when technology was expensive, eye-wateringly expensive in some cases, and looking back seemed primitive, they knew they had to allocate their capital to the things that mattered most. At least the first one, if you spilled a bottle of wine, it would pull in the middle of the table. The second one, if you spilled a bottle of wine, it would all end up on the floor. So, <laughs> I, think, I think it's a great example of, you know, um, inspect and adapt and, you know, you try and you, you learn from your mistakes and you move on. And the last one was actually really flat. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a sense, so in the early days when we started the business, when people joined, they kind of helped us build their tables. And it was a lot of doing it as a team, but also on this sense of not spending on things we didn't need to spend on. The other thing is, going back to the start of the internet, so we, we didn't, there was no AWS when we started Aconnect, so there was no cloud-based solution you could use to host your, your product. So we, 
literally had our own servers and went and put them in racks in a building in a co-located data centre. And so we did do a lot of that stuff in the early days, managed hardware, even the systems. That were, I mean, we had a database, of course, but a lot of the front end, there wasn't a lot of tools that you could use. So the, the, the product was in the, built. In the frame, it wasn't any frameworks. It wasn't frameworks. So the product was kind of built ground up and we had to make things work. I mean, this is also back when dial-up modems were how you access the internet. So mm. thankfully, ADSL started to come along, but our first couple of customers didn't even have computers on site. So we need to explain to them not just what our product did, but what the internet was and why that would help them. And then, yeah, by the way, you might need some computers and you will need an internet connection as well. So yeah. it was sort of this sense of, of helping the industry adapt to technology and to, or adopt you know, this new technology. Mm. I think it's worth pointing out that like we started in 2000, we were a cloud only company. We never had installed software. And that was in a time when cloud didn't exist. The word cloud wasn't a word. There was, what was the, what was the term? Uh, ASP, application ASP. service That's provider. That's it. Was what, what, yeah. Yeah, and we often had pressure from customers saying, I need a local version. And our answer was just no, you, we, we, the internet will be fast enough, uh, it will get faster. So right from day one, we were a, a, an internet only software as a service application, uh, fully cloud based without any need for local anything, which was 20 years ago was not the accepted way of doing business. And, and Salesforce, had, I think they started around the same time, but Salesforce wasn't sort of a, a household name at the time. So the whole concept of SaaS was still quite new. So we changed our strategy. Like we thought we were going to make money in different ways than we did. So we evolved pretty quickly. Uh, I, think, I think we always had a belief that the internet would change the way construction projects work and make it a lot better. There's many difficulties that a new founder faces, including dealing with the inevitable rejections, the no's and the naysayers. But as the saying goes, ignorance is bliss. Or in this case, naivety can be the fuel to a company's fire, ultimately leading to success. I remember, Lee, that time we were in Sydney and we had someone who was advising us who went off to speak to one of the major contractors in, in Sydney and came back to us and basically said, I'm, I'm not going to be involved. These guys are going to win. They're going to dominate the industry. You guys might as well pack up and go home. And we, we were kind of a bit gutted by that. But we sat down and I think this is where it kind of comes into the naivety a little bit. And was like, well, after you know, looking at our shoes for five minutes, just both said, well, now let's do this. But you, you have to be able to get through those setbacks. Yeah, resilience yeah. is really important, I think. The only thing I'd say personally, I, sales was hard. Some companies were able to sell, and t today it's a lot easier, of course, they were able to sell online and don't really need to build you know, big sales teams or they can do it through inside sales teams or through marketing. But when we were selling 20 years ago, it was picking up the phone. So this was hardcore sales where our customers didn't know that they needed us. So we had to pick up the phone and it was, uh, Rob sort of went more product and I sort of went more on the sales side, although we did a lot together in those, particularly in those early years. But I reckon it's the hardest six months of my life was working out how to sell and dealing with the rejection that Rob talked about, but dealing with that probably nine out of 10 phone calls where you call somebody and they're not interested. And that was yeah, and then hard the, work. Having the gumption to pick up the phone again. But I guess I realised, or we realised that there was no, nobody else was going to sell our product. Um, we had to sell it and people weren't going to come and find us, at least at that, at that point. So we had, to, we had to drive those sales. And then it of course got easier as we started to build up a network of users and we had genuine network effects in how the business works. So that started to do a lot of our selling for us. But in the early days, it was hard, hard work. Yeah. And then 
It was a genuine yeah. paradigm shift, right? Like, people yeah. weren't going on to, by the way, Google didn't exist, so they couldn't go to Google and search for it, but they weren't going on to whatever search engine going, I want a you know, you know, cloud-based, not the cloud even exists. Like, how would they look or know that they were looking for us? Rob and Lee were about to do their second round of funding. They'd already raised a couple of million dollars and were looking to raise a few more to take Aconex to the next level. And then September 11 happened. So everybody put their hands back in their pockets, essentially. We were 17 people, so we're still very small, and had to go back to 12. And we essentially got rid of everybody except for our development team and went back to doing everything together. So we were well, between us, so we had any marketing, any legal work, any of those sorts of things, we just worked out how to do it. And you know, did a bit of bush lawyering, which probably wasn't the best <laughs> thing to do, paid for that later. But, you know, yeah, so there's lots of things that we just had to work out how to do. And this sense of just working it out and problem solving each thing that came across our desk. But then, of course, as the business grew, we got to the point where, you know, I mentioned sales was really hard uh, work. We eventually got to the point where we hired salespeople, who were far better salespeople than me. So I remember we had our probably our second or third salesperson. After about two months, I said to him, you should be running sales, not me. You're far better than me. And he basically took on that, that, that role. So you know, letting go of things, it's not always easy as a founder to let go, but some things were very, like sales I was very happy to let go of. <laughs> it was like, yep, you should take that. But other parts of the business probably hang on to for too long. Post-September 11th, when Aconex began hiring again, the guys realised there's a nuance of hiring a team that really care. For Robin Lee, this became a reality, not only by the way each employee was brought into the fold, but also due to the fantastic company culture that they had cultivated. Aconex was simply a place where people loved to work. That was kind of when we went, hang on, we, what what is it about this that's special? Let's kind of be conscious of what it is so that we can then, as we hire, we can keep that in mind and make sure that we maintain it. Because I think culture's one of those funny things. You can't go off and have an offsite and say, what do we want it to be and write it down on a bit of paper. That doesn't work, right? It, ha- it comes from the collective personalities of everyone in the organisation. But you can easily lose it by bringing the wrong people in or having the wrong attitude or having things that poison it. So you've got to be really careful about keeping it because once it's gone, it's... It's like putting lightning back in a bottle, it doesn't happen. I think you have to have your culture connected from throughout your organisation. In a and, real way. In a real way, and to your customer. And uh, that's what I mean, but specifically connecting through the business. So firstly, Rob and I had to uh, be that culture. So if we wanted people to respect everybody, to respect other people, we had to respect them. You know, it's just, you, you can't expect a team to do something different to the leaders in the business. So that meant that both Rob and me, and then as we built out an executive team and then had leaders in the business, that we all had to align around our values and the behaviours we wanted within the business. So one of our values, and a lot of people talk about putting the customer first. We had a customer's value, but we genuinely did it. So it would mean things like if a customer called up on a weekend or late on a Friday night, Rob and I would take the call. Um, We would always go that extra mile for the customer ourselves. One of our values was to challenge what's accepted. So we used to challenge each other, but we do it, again, do it respectfully, but we we challenge each other, we challenge the team, we get the team to challenge us, and we had to be open to challenge if we expected people to challenge what's accepted. So you have to reflect the values in your own leadership. I think the other thing was we wanted our values to, when I say it had to reflect through to our customer, 
the inside culture of the company should reflect how you position yourself externally. So if you're challenging what's accepted, that made sense because we were challenging the industry to change how it was operating to operate for the better. On top of all the natures of growing a business, from hiring a good team, having a great company culture and putting the company customer first, Rob and Lee realised very quickly that throughout the process, you will make mistakes and that's okay. You have to accept that there's going to be lots of things that you get wrong and we got loads of things wrong over the years but I think a couple of things were being not being too hard on yourself in the sense you've got to give yourself a little bit of leeway I mean we we obviously were very driven as founders and quite hard on ourselves but you have to give yourself a bit of leeway I think probably the other thing is your business is not you so separating your identity from the business you're building so mm. if it and businesses fail and whatever the stats are you know nine out of ten businesses fail well probably more than that uh, but you can't let your whole life fall apart because your business fails. So you've got to have interests outside of it, whether it's it could be family, it could be sport, it could be whatever it is. But having interests that define you outside of work, I think, are really important. I think it might sound a little trite to say, but all the mistakes you make along the way actually help inform the next decision. So these things made the journey what it was, and I don't think we would have come out the other end if we hadn't have had that, that journey or that path. There's probably one thing that sticks out in my mind about something I wish hadn't actually, you could kind of take that out and things might have been better for it, was we took on debt and I would recommend to anybody, especially in the early stages of a company, don't take on debt. It's got all sorts of implications if things go wrong. You can actually pretty quickly lose your business. I understand why people do it. It's relatively cheap compared to the to the dilution of, of equity, but in our case, it nearly took us under, right? Rob and Lee ended up in a tussle with the debt holders where they weren't releasing the mortgage of the business. As a result, Aconex risked going into insolvency within a matter of months. It created a legal tussle that went on. Like, so we had to go off and raise money quickly to kind of get through that. The, the, the kind of the stress that that created, I know, but like I put on 10 kilos, it, it affected my health, Lee, like it, it, it was something that really affected us. So it took us out of growing the business. I remember one of our staff members kind of after that all kind of passed, they said, hey, you guys were kind of like absent for a year. Not absent, we weren't out of the camp, but we were kind of in many ways mentally in this other tussle. So we weren't doing what we were meant to be doing of driving the business as much as we should have been. And the mental strain, the mental stress, the personal angst that comes out of it, it was just not worth it. I would have rather not have learned that lesson, to be honest. Yeah, and that was sort of, in a sense, we were optimising the capital efficiency of the business, but it wasn't optimising for our mental well-being. that's for sure. So it was sort of, again, I think sometimes founders, and we, we obviously invest in businesses, and I think sometimes founders can be a little bit too worried about getting the perfect round with the perfect valuation. and. Yeah, it can be a real rod for your back. You raise money at too high a valuation or you don't raise enough or you take on debt, as Rob mentioned in our case. All those things can make it really tough. And I think it's it's not trying to optimise for everything, giving giving yourself a little bit of room if things go wrong. And unfortunately, with something like debt, one of the things that happened was we started to breach some covenants and, and then yeah, the debt holder, um, in this case one of the banks, could have called that up and made... And so it was just not worth the, worth the risk. You know? And so... There was things that we, things like that we got wrong, but I guess we, after that, we sort of learned, you know, we didn't, we were then a bit more cautious in terms of how we ran things. We also ran a little bit more cautiously than a lot of businesses do today. We ran cash neutral for the better part of, well, we raised money in 2008, two weeks, we had several rounds up until 2008, a couple of weeks before the GFC, and then didn't bring in more capital to, to, until our IPO in 2014. So a SaaS business, we're already doing 
over $30 million in revenue in 2008, growing at 100% year over year, to then not take additional funding rounds would be quite unusual today, given our growth rates and where we were. But it was a different capital in raising market for one, but also we wanted to make sure we could live or operate under our own cash flow. One of the things that Rob and Lee feel they did right throughout Aconex's up and downs was being super honest. This began with the valuation on the business and was facilitated by the fact that their shareholders were easy to talk to. We'd obviously have conversations and get to a point where we thought we had a reasonable valuation, then we'd raise money on that and just get it done. It's probably a little bit of a different environment too. There weren't a lot of VCs really active in Australia, so we had to essentially raise from high net worth and family offices. We'd raised about $30 million before we did the institutional round with Francisco Partners from the US um, in 2008. But back then it was easy to go to Sand Hill Road and go up and down and talk to the investors there than it was to raise in Australia. So that is different. That was different then to what it is now. But I think some of the things that we learned, I mean, if you can raise from, I mean, we had great high net worth investors. Actually, a lot of them became mentors to us. So bringing in people that bringing more than money that can help. When I say bring more money, it was people that we could pick up the phone to and have a chat to about something. I think that was really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and I think what fed into being able to raise again later was we raised money in the, the, the first one, you have to get that away. But from that moment, we communicated very frequently and openly with our shareholders. We did monthly shareholder memos that were, you know, quite detailed but quite open. They weren't trying to, like, you know, put a gold sheen on everything they were if things weren't right so I think we got a certain amount of respect and trust from our shareholders because a we were performing okay but b we were really open with our communication style so that meant that the next round they were a more willing to come in themselves and b more willing to maybe pass that opportunity on to someone else to have a look at as well and so that virality of that kind of shareholder base came from I think a really open clear and regular communication style. And in many a couple of cases where we had to, we talked about the debt issue and we had to raise money fast, we were able to do, we just did rights issues. So we'd give all shareholders the opportunity to invest at a certain price. And one of the rounds, I think the, the round before we did the, the Francisco Partners rounds, it would have been 2007, I guess, and we did an $18 million round in the space of a couple of weeks. And so, and that was largely we had to. Well, we had to, <laughs> but we had no choice. But we had shareholders that backed that very quickly. When you, if you build that relationship, people trust you. You can often ask a lot more of them down, you know, uh, later on. Mm. The fundamentals of running a business remain the same across multiple industries, and every company starts with assumptions. Rob and Lee discovered that leaning in and learning from other businesses, founders and customers, can be the fastest way to build a successful venture. We had people from the industry that we could talk to, uh, early investors. So we were able to learn from a lot of different people, but and you learn different things from different people. Um, so yeah, we learned from anybody we could. We learned. I've been mean, reading books as the other thing. So mm -hmm. I, you know, we'd pick up books and read those. So learn from people who have done it before. And then a lot of it was just first principles as well. So we've got a problem here. How do you solve it? How do you solve it? Let's work through the options. Let's make a decision, and if it's not working, we'll change. Mm -hmm. This sense of just making a decision and getting on with it, which is another one of our values, just this sense, you know, get on with it. Our pricing model that we ended up with was a good example of that, where we had to make a decision, problem solve and move on. Because um, when we started out, <clears throat> the kind of the accepted way of pricing software was per seat and in cloud or, you know, hosted world, it was per megabyte or per transaction. And that's what our assumption around our pricing model was going to be all of that, per seat, per megabyte, per whatever. But we, the first couple of customers, they were like, well, I'm, my, I'm a head contractor, I don't know how many 
uses I'm going to have. I don't know what my, my sub, how many subbies there are. I don't know how many mega. I don't even know what a megabyte is, let alone how many I'm going to use. And also, they had a fixed price to deliver the project, so they kind of went, well, I just want to know how much it's going to cost. So what we ended up doing was problem solving with that and we kind of went for projects of certain sizes. We modelled out how many users we thought they'd have for that kind of typical project of 50 million versus 100 and how many megabytes they'd use and kind of built it up as if they were doing it that old way and then plotted that on the graph. And we ended up with this kind of curve that as the construction value went up, the price went up, but not linearly. And we were then able to, for a certain, as projects came to us, we could say to them, well, here's your monthly fee. It's going to cost you, it's guaranteed, it's going to cost you three, two grand a month or three grand a month or whatever it is for all the uses you want and all the storage you want and all the rest of it, which actually had an unexpected but amazing effect on our virality and our network growth because they didn't have to think about giving that extra, you know, incremental user a license because they weren't paying for that extra, you know, there's always a tail on a project where they say, is it worth giving Joe a license because, you know, we use it once a week. But with our model, they were able to just put everyone on it, which meant that they got much more value, which meant that they were much more likely to come back. And it also spread the adoption of this thing a lot broader. Well, the first time we went to the US, I think we went too broad. Once we sort of narrowed our market focus, we were able to get more penetration into a market or sub-market that enabled those network effects to build more more rapidly. So we did it did inform our thinking but we all yeah we always believe there was network effect from day one we didn't know how that would play out necessarily uh, but we wanted to build a platform where multiple companies would come together to work and ideally those companies would then put other projects on over time apart from adding products and increasing their user base the foundational aconex model didn't really change because it didn't need to Rob and Lee were listing as an unusual company at a time when there weren't a lot of tech businesses on the market. And after debating on whether to list in the US or Australia, they finally settled on the ASX. So we felt the ASX would be a good market and probably we weren't quite big enough for a listing in the US at the time. And having a largely, while we had a global customer base, we still had quite a, quite a bit in Australia. So we felt the market was fine to list at that point. I would say that we did a lot of education. I mean, it was sort of going out, you know, sort of smash your head against the wall kind of stuff sometimes where you're going back and for the 15th, not 15th, like 50th, 100th time, you're telling the same story about what we do. And, and a lot of people did And didn't. layering SaaS revenue and all. Yeah. yeah. And so the whole model, we, you know, and a SaaS business where you, you sell and you get that annuity stream building up over time, uh, a lot of explanation to the market. We were, you know, we were running cash neutral, so we were not a profitable business. And that's overall, though, right? Overall, yeah. But we had very profitable markets like Australia, which were funding growth into our international market. So, getting the market to understand that took a little bit of time. I think also, actually, when we listed, I think we were the largest unprofitable, so not profitable business to have listed on the ASX at that point in time. Of course, today there's a lot of businesses that are growing fast and profitability is less of an issue. But so it was. Yeah, look, it was, a, it was a tough ask. After listing on the ASX, things took a drastic turn. Rob and Lee were in Europe for a company event, and at 5am in the morning, they got the call from their bankers that no founder ever wants to receive. So I'm literally in the bathroom of this hotel in Rome taking a call. and Trying to be quiet. Trying to be quiet, <laughs> and within about 10 seconds, I knew basically it had all gone to crap. So this IPO, which had all looked good, Everybody was, you know, we'd had good response on the road show, went to do the book build, and the markets had gone a little bit wobbly the week before. And with an Australian IPO, you essentially have to, with a Pathfinder process, whatever it was called back in the day, um, 
you would you would basically do your book build, pre and get allocate before you even lodge your prospectus. You have this three week period where essentially investors are holding their stock and before you list. And so with the market going a bit wobbly, we had a few investors pull out and we didn't get the we covered the book but not by enough. And so we decided to pull the IPO and then. But within two weeks, and the banks and a few investors supported us, and then we went back to the market and then did the listing in, in, in two, two weeks after that. But again, it was sort of one of these things where we were literally ready to go. Everything was done, six months' work or longer, years of work really, I guess, But and it was all off. And so talk about resilience, trying to you know, not jump out of a building when you've been working on this thing and it's all just gone to shit. But then, yeah, we were sort of didn't... You, know, you get past that and you say, well, let's just see what we can do. And we end up then repricing the IPO down a bit, not significantly, but then raising less capital and it was all fine and we got the, got the business away. But then it took a while for the market to understand. And then you have all, all the ups and downs of riding the share price, which um, I don't know, maybe Rob can comment on that, but it was sort of a <laughs> one day to the next, the market you know, prices you on stuff that's got no, no bearing on what you're doing in the company. So. Yeah. Listed markets can be notoriously fickle, and the share price of Akinex was fairly flat for the first three or so months. But after a run where it began to pick up, in came the short sellers. You can get burnt by short sellers, but short sellers can get burnt themselves as well, which actually happened in the end. So they kind of short sold us. They then you know, drove our price down. It went down way, way down, which a whole bunch of people made their money on the way back up again. And I think it was also that point where we were driven back down to a very cheap price, which is when Oracle, who were, would have been sniffing around looking at us, would have gone, now's our time. These guys are now cheaper than they were. They've been driven probably down below market. We can probably step in now and, and acquire them, which is another unintended but outcome of short selling, right, is we now don't have a company like Akinex and the ASX because I think because the short sellers drove it down to a point where it was able to be bought by somebody else. Um, yeah. And we weren't looking to sell. And uh, I mean, Oracle's, a, I think, a good business for the you know, Aconex. You know, it fits well with their product set. So, that, so I think it's all worked out for our customers and for the product. But we certainly weren't, you know, we weren't looking to sell the business. Uh, but eventually Oracle put in a price that we really couldn't say no to. And I think the, yeah, the downside for the ASX was losing, a, you know, through that, the way the price moved. And... Look, some of that you could argue it was business performance, you know, possibly, but a lot of it was to do with how the market was driven down by short sellers. And that was sort of a little sad in some ways to see that you know, a, a company that was doing really well in its market, doing a, a global leader, was lost to the ASX because of that. So, you know, one of the things in the public market, you just have to be prepared for, you can't, you know, there's no way you can control the price. You can deliver on your results, you can build the business well. Um, sometimes people price the business below what it's worth, sometimes it can get ahead of itself, but running, riding that emotional roller coaster of having a share price move, and a little bit of the movements day to day don't matter, but when there was big movements because of things which were beyond our control, that's, um, that's something you've got to be aware of as you go public. Um, yeah. So that was the bittersweet con of listing, but what were the pros? One of the benefits of listing was it gave liquidity. To, it should be really clear about why we listed. It gave liquidity to our shareholders. So that was one thing that... So They've been there for 14 years, some of them. Yeah, so shareholders could choose whether they held our stock or sold out. And it's much harder to do that. You can do a little bit of secondary as part of a round, but it's much harder to allow shareholders to, to buy and sell any point they want. The other thing it gave us was the ability to raise money very quickly. So 
We did an acquisition in Europe, um, it was a $120 million acquisition. We raised that money in a day. So the, the ability to be able to, with the market behind you, and we had at that point, the market was very supportive of, of the company and we were able to raise money very quickly for that acquisition. It would have been harder to do that at the private markets um, or with that speed, I think it would have been harder to do it. So there's a lot of benefits of being listed, but there's also some downsides. And I think it's weighing up those, weighing up the pros and cons. One thing I would say to any, and I'm going to say this to a lot of companies that, yeah, anybody who wants to ask me about it and companies I've invested in, just don't, you don't want to list too early. I've seen some companies that are still very early in their journey want to list and I just, I just don't think it's worth it. You want to, you want to keep building your business to a certain point before you, before you list it. Rob and Lee understand better than anyone that it's a lot of work building a startup and you don't need the extra complexity of being public until you're large enough to support that. You need to be able to afford a good CFO and a brilliant legal team to deal with the short sellers. And also, rumours. It was ridiculous, some of it. I mean, to the point where we didn't even... I mean, there's things like... I'll give you an example. A lot of rumours. Um, actually, one person... Deliberately spread rumours too, by the way. Yeah, and there were rumours that... I mean, one rumour, for example, that was out there was that Rob and I had fallen out. And actually... <laughs> One, one shareholder sold on the basis of that rumour and sold shares only two weeks before the Oracle acquisition was announced. So lost, lost 20 million bucks, by the Yeah, 20 million buck, you know, sell decision on that. So, no, we hadn't fallen out. So that was one thing. There was other things that... One example, this is a very minor example. The lesson here was... There was a lesson out of this, but we... From one year to the next in our accounts, we changed the categorisation of some of our sales expenses. And so one of the rumours or one of the the... The, the thesis that one of the short sellers put out was that we were paying exorbitant agent commissions to drive sales and so that our revenue growth was being driven by paying a lot of agent commissions, which is not true. And so one of the lessons out of that was to our finance team is if any categorisation ever changes in accounts, in any future company you work in ever again, make sure you flag that so that people can work out whether that categorisation should change. And so it was just a really minor thing, but they picked up on that and used that to, to, to drive things in the market. I mean, lots of little things, but you know, there's a report that came out and you see this with short sellers, they'll, they'll short the stock and then commission a report, put the report into the market, which calls into question everything. And then how do you, do you respond to the short sellers, don't you? And yeah, I mean, all these sorts of questions you, you have to respond to as a public company that, again, I go back to what I said before, if you're too small a company, you just don't have the resources to deal with some of these things that might come up. Rob and Lee have become investors themselves since their time at Aconex. And while they usually invest together, supporting technology quite broadly, they always have a fondness for construction technology. And in their opinion, there is no better place to build a business like Aconex than in Australia. I think we're at the start of that adoption curve in construction. It's the world's largest industry. If you add up you know, the GDP of construction, infrastructure engineering around the world, it's massive. And Australia does really well at it. This is the other thing. I think in, in certain sectors, you want to, you know, maybe hardware, you want to invest in Israel, in, in uh, social or so consumer, you want to invest in Silicon Valley. In construction tech, there's no place better really than in Australia. And I think we've got you know, a lot of great uh, young startups that are you know, early early stage companies that are doing really well in construction tech. So love looking at that and have made, Rob and I have made quite a few investments in the construction technology related companies um, that are doing different things in the space. Yeah, I'd echo those those comments from Lee that, I mean, construction tech is huge. It's just really starting, even though you might say that, you know, we've, it's been around for a while. It's, it's only really scratching the surface. Adoption is still low. 
lots of growth to happen. There's there's now other um, fronts that are opening up, other battlegrounds, if you like, around certain certain solutions that need to the industry to move forward. And he's right, the, the Australian contact scene is really strong, and I think it comes from it's a it's an innovative sector here generally, construction in Australia. It's kind of by necessity we we've innovated quite a lot through you know if you look around the world about how construction's gone overall it's been pretty flat from a productivity point of view but Australia is actually a standout from a productivity improvement point of view but it still can do better but also we're kind of a funny sized country we're a bit of a goldilocks we're not so big that it takes forever to penetrate but we're not small so small that it's insignificant it's a great proving ground for some of these um, solutions to, to start here but then go global Rob and Lee's final advice to us was to impress how important it is to be passionate about your product. But on top of that, that it really, really matters who you do business with. Who you go on the journey with really matters from a skill point of view, from a support point of view, from a mental health point of view. All of those things matter about who you're on that journey with. So, I mean, choose wisely because it really does make a difference. But I think if it if you're passionate, if you think you've got something you can do, then have a crack. That's what it's all about. And in the early days, I spent more time with Rob than I did with my wife. So in a sense, you've got to treat it as a, it's a big decision. But it's, I think, also being able to have a certain amount of allowing each other to make mistakes, so, you know, a certain amount of humility in how you deal with each other. We tried to build a culture in Aconex that, you know, that did have a... A level of humility and again as I said before culture has to be echoed in the people leading the business so making sure that we didn't have egos and didn't bring egos so it was never about one of us over the other it was how we worked together the other thing was probably and there's times where we probably needed we did have a little bit of distance we worked very closely but Rob went to London for how many years three years three years, three years. I worked out of the US for four years so we were close and we worked side by side a lot but we also had periods where one of us would go off and help build a region and do different things. And we also had different areas that we worked in in the business and we weren't tripping over. I mean, in the early days, we did everything together. And then over time, that kind of spread out into, you know, taking different parts of the business. I think the other thing is to be conscious of how your founder relationship plays through the rest of the business. So not just about your relationship as founders, that can be great, but that can also be, even if that, that can be too good in some senses and toxic in the rest of the business. So. We had to. Like all, if we were seen to be covering each other or making excuses for, for each other, that would be a bad thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's being able to. We had a team that was working with us, so we had to also acknowledge that we were part of a broader team. Uh, so that became. You know, and the other thing I'd say, I worked with an exec coach for quite a while, and part of that work was also how Rob and I worked together. Aside from that person, we also had another group that worked with us both in terms of what we wanted to achieve with the business and ourselves and then we came back together to see how that meshed and gelled and and there were things that we we had open conversations around and so I think being open and you know being able to you know being able also to say to each other when you got the shits with each other even if I agreed with Rob I'd often challenge him because it was not good for the business if he wasn't challenged by the rest of the execs on you know if we're having a debate around product or a debate around whatever it was so we'd often you know make sure that we were having the debate again in a respectful and constructive way so that the rest of the team could have the debate so the worst thing is if two founders go in and obviously we had a lot of say within the business but if we're aligned on something it's almost impossible for anybody else to kind of challenge to challenge that so that's where you know your founder dynamic can be too tight 
and too aligned in the sense of, and it stops debate within the rest of the team. So how do you, you know, if you're going to have two founders or a number of founders in a business, how do you encourage other people to have a debate with you? Those sorts of questions have to be built and worked on over time. We touched on culture for a bit at the start, but I think just to reinforce how important culture is, I mean, you've got to be, you've got to be doing something you're passionate about and that you're proud to do. But if you can kind of infect the rest of the organisation with this sense of pride and sense of purpose as well, then you end up with a better outcome for one, but you also end up having a bunch of fun along the way. And I think that's kind of a message is it's hard work and it's, you know, it's all these things, but you can have an incredible amount of fun with an amazing group of people that you look back on it and that's the thing that I miss the most is is the people and the culture and the the way we collectively gave a shit that's yeah that's something that you can't just wave a wand for a big thanks to Rob and Lee for their candid and at sometimes hilarious take on their journey at Aconex. Both Lee and Rob are hugely active in building the Australian tech ecosystem still. As we mentioned earlier, both are active investors. Lee is the chairman and partner at Second Quarter Ventures, a phenomenal fund specialising in secondary investment, alongside many of SquarePeg's investors, actually. And he now manages his early stage technology investing via Saniel Ventures a construction and SaaS specialist fund. Rob is now the CEO and founder at Gravel Road Ventures, an early stage VC, and the Gravel Road Foundation, which helps to provide young girls and Indigenous Australians the chance to shine. A big thank you as ever to Sarah for producing this episode so beautifully and for help on editing and scripting this episode too. We'll see you in a few weeks.